We bought this building just about 10 years ago. And uh, it wasn't too long after that, within the first year of our existence, that um, one of our neighbors, um, who lives close by, um, <laughs> didn't like the sound of our worship and the practice for that worship on Sundays. And um, so he would call the Denver Police Department saying that we were breaking a noise ordinance. Just so you know, we actually had a decibel meter out there at the property line to make sure we were okay. And in truth, the traffic going down Calumet was louder than our worship team. But it didn't matter. This happened so often that finally the police said, we're not dealing with this anymore. Um, you can take it to court. So they issued us what amounts to a ticket for breaking a noise violation. And uh, then it was Scum of the Earth Church versus the city and county of Denver <laughs> in court. And uh, it's kind of like, do you want to pay the fine or do you want to go to court? And I say, we're going to go to court. Like, this is stupid. All right? Now, <clears throat> it just so happens that my brother is a courtroom trial lawyer. And so uh, I called my brother, who then mounted a defense. I mean, we had, you know, it was just like on television. You know, we had witnesses for the prosecution, and we had witnesses for the defense. We had, uh, you know, people standing up in court and going, Objection, Your Honor! And then the the uh, judge would say sustained or overruled and blah, blah, blah. It went on and on and on. And we won in court. Like, you can beat City Hall if you're right and you've got a good lawyer. Um, so just so you know, um, our attitude toward this neighbor has always been one of we will return curses for blessing. We will be kind when our neighbor is mean. <laughs> Did I get that dismissed around? Uh, I probably meant to do that. Um, that would be my fleshly nature speaking. Um, yeah, we want to return blessing for curses. Um, I mean, so just so you know, that's always been our stance. We've bought secret gifts uh, and gift cards and placed them in his mailbox and all those kinds of things. Uh, you can... Just know that that's our stance, okay? Uh, but we did win in court, so we don't hear about that anymore. Um, the lawyer happens to be my brother, Mark Sayers. He's wanted to actually preach here for a long time, and because I'm the uh, kind of jerky older brother, I never let him do it until now, just uh, you know, a couple of months before I leave. So... Would you all please welcome my younger brother, the scum lawyer, Mark Sayers. Wow. Thank you. I, uh, <laughs> it was a nice introduction. I kind of didn't know he was going to do that, but, um, you know, the uh, the fact is that we were just plain right, and that's what came out in court. And uh, uh, to the glory, glory be to God. You know, I've wanted to come and speak 
for some time, and it was more or less uh, kind of like the taunt of the younger brother to the older brother. <laughs> and I'll come talk. Come on, let me come talk. And then, of course, Mike knows me. I have the reputation as the not-so-nice brother because I'm blunter than the two. In, in overall, I say things pretty, pretty straightforward. And uh, Mike's not necessarily the nice one. Matt is the nice one. Matt is the nice one. And Mike was never nice to me anyway. So, But I'm glad to be able to, to come to SCUM, and I hope... Um, that uh, everyone I'm speaking to is striving to follow Jesus, um, seeking to have uh, a knowledge of him through the Spirit of God. And, um, and I'm humbled just to be able to come and talk to you because, you know, I may, I may talk in court and I may speak to jurors, but uh, the body of Christ is uh, a more important group of people to come speak to. And let's say a quick prayer. Father... I pray that through the work of your son, Jesus, that our Father, Lord, you will send your Holy Spirit to teach us today, to give us wisdom and understanding, and open our eyes and to enlighten us with the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, folks, you know, Mike asked if I would speak about a gift that I see that God has given us, and um, when he said that, I guess I... I took Mike's request to mean, since it's the Christmas season, not to state the obvious. Jesus is obviously the greatest gift to any one of us. But to try and uh, speak on something, a facet of what we've received and what we have in our faith in Jesus Christ and the gifts that God has given us. I'm not particularly fond of speaking on topics. I really like doing uh, studies and, and teaching as we go through specific scriptures, because it requires you to pull scriptures from everywhere. But let me uh, tell you, the one greatest gift that I believe that I've received, and I believe the Lord gives to all of us, um, is an all-important answer to a universal question. Uh, that question is, who am I? Who are you? And who are we? Um, I have a, let me explain what I mean by that gift, because I have a very specific uh, story I can relate. It's personal. But I'll tell you first, I've entitled this sermon, as Mike has up there, Idolatry of Identity and the Gift of God. When I was in college, and I'm, I write out my notes, so I'm never going to say them exactly like I write them. And I know this story because I lived it. <laughs> when I was in college, and I shouldn't say, well, in college, it was in and out, and in and out. Uh, there came a time when God taught me a very important lesson. And the Holy Spirit that I had received as a junior in high school, in many ways, the Lord used my brother Mike for that to eventually come about. Um, he was teaching me something more. It was about a pressure that we all feel. Um, I learned in those formative years in college that I wanted to be free from myself. To be free from being so focused on what was supposed to come next for me. What was I doing with my life? Uh, what was I going to do with it? This question is more recognizably a question you've all heard, maybe initially, on what are you going to be when you grow up? 
it starts at a very early age for humanity. I assume it happens in every language and in every country. Um, maybe not in some of the countries with as much promise as the United States has, but many of you are familiar with this question and this subject. My situation at the time that I was uh, being worked on by the Holy Spirit was that I was living in Boulder, and I had been in and out of school, as already mentioned. And uh, as time was passing, I was noticing that friends who had started college, you know, at a certain point in time, uh, they were finished finishing in four years and graduating and leaving, and that I was not uh, latched on to that same game plan. Um, it wasn't going to happen that way, and I wasn't necessarily committed to the same pursuit of, I'll get in and get out in four years, get a job, do all that. Some of that comes from just having already been a believer and um, not having a specific fear about it, but not realizing that there were some things that the Holy Spirit can actually work on that are very personal. You know, God's a God of action, usually doing something for us, and He is always doing something for us. But there are things that are internal that become handicaps, perhaps, even. We look healthy. We look like we manage well in life. And I think I probably even look that way to many people. But um, the question was, who am I and what am I going to do? And how does that ham- hamper us? So a little bit of history. I'd sort of been, and I don't say this to adulate myself. Mike would say it was true. I'd sort of been kind of like a promised child. You know, I got straight A's in high school. I was uh, first string and football team, varsity, doing this stuff. Very popular in one sense, so much so that I was always embarrassed. I didn't know anybody's names. And uh, I got, you know, I was in the choir, blah, 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 goes on and on. I go off to the United States Air Force Academy. I got a nomination from a senator to attend, and I went. There I was on the dean's list. I was on the varsity fencing team. There was nothing that was really getting in the way. I made a decision, though, not to make a career out of that, and that's what brought me up to Boulder. But once I'm up there, because I had to pay my own way, I'm struggling with, how do you pay the rent? How do you pay the food? How do you pay your car insurance? And how do you pay for a semester at school? And it didn't even cost half of what it costs nowadays. But, you know, if you're not getting good jobs from people you know, you're not making enough in one summer to even pay for that semester. So so I had to ask myself, you can see why I was asking those questions, of what would I be and do and pursue? Certain family and people who care about... Uh, care about me, and you probably are familiar with this, care about, they ask questions like, where are you, uh, what are you doing? Where are you in school? What are you pursuing? What are your, what are you planning to do? What are you planning to be? How much longer before you graduate? So I was suddenly thrown into this psychological dilemma of having nothing to identify myself as, and yet the Holy Spirit was there. The Lord taught me that even though I felt a pressure to give them a satisfactory answer, and I would spiritually struggle, struggle with this and, and get a little depressed at not having a very good answer. Not always, just a few times. But they, the family, the people asking the questions, they were not my antagonist. They were not causing me problems. I, it was tempting to want to blame them, and if I had just been a knee-jerk reactionary with social issues and psychological problems, I probably would have said, yeah, it's all their fault, it's not mine, and go see a therapist. But 
the beauty of it is, is that the Holy Spirit is a therapist. And uh, all of the psychological dilemmas we have in life, I really do believe that the Holy Spirit can put us on the couch, sit us down in prayer, let God teach you, let him speak to you. What I learned was it wasn't them tempting me to define myself and to trying to box me in, so to speak, and arrive at some definition of myself. Instead, it was an enemy spirit. You all know who that is. It was tempting me to view my life as defined by all these concerns in the future and choices about what I was going to be. The devil was working inside my head, distracting me from the truth. What the Lord showed me was that this measuring of self-worth, this personal value based on what label I have, how I was distinguished in the eyes of the world or how I'm identified, was a larger spiritual problem that did not start with other people but started within me. And the devil was using every tool he had to work it. The evil one wanted me to be burdened with worldly concerns about how I was supposed to navigate my future, my path, my career, my friendships, my family, and my loyalties. The Lord showed me that it was my identity that I was being concerned with. The devil wanted me to be burdened with fear about how I could define myself in this world and wanted me to concern myself with how the world and others see me and what was my identity based on every choice I had to make. You know, this pressure is in all of us, as I've already stated, and to some degree or another. But here's what the gift of God is, is that you already have an identity. I think we don't keep that in mind from ages 5 to 18 to 25. The scripture, Psalms 139, 12 through 14, reads, Even in the darkness is not dark, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In the womb, God already knew who you were. He made you specially. There's only that one identity. In Jeremiah, it says, one, uh, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I can extrapolate that verse into the current body of Christ and know that if he has given us each gifts to make up the one body of Christ, that he has consecrated you, me, to have an identity that is not, maybe it's like a prophet like Jeremiah, but it could be something else. It is definitely a part of the body of Christ. Revelations 2.17 then reads, and this is almost like bookends, I guess, for us, from the womb to the end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You can't get more of an identity that defines you than one that excludes 
everyone else. And the Lord God has done that from the day you were born, conceived, and will do it till the day that you die and live eternally thereafter with him. What are some of the idols that we struggle with that tempt us to have an identity other than this identity that God has given? It starts in Genesis. It's an interesting story. We all know it. Genesis 3, 4 through 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You probably remember this little repartee. The devil says, So what has God said? Uh, And she tells him, Yeah, we can eat of all the trees except for this one in the garden. And he then lies to her and says, Oh, yeah, when you eat this, you'll be like God. What If you stop for a second, you ask yourself, what was the temptation to Eve? It wasn't just disobedience. Of course it was disobedience to go ahead and do it. But what tempted her? What got Adam and Eve? You will be like God. Now, I suppose you could be created out of the dust and this breath of life and not really know what your identity is because you're the only two people on earth. And you're not tempted to go, am I a lawyer? Am I a doctor? Am I you know, this? Do I have these things? Am I rich? Am I poor? But you still don't have one, maybe, except that you are God's loved creation. And so Satan was right at hand. I'm going to tempt them right away. He did it with a lust for an identity. That's what he created in Eve, just by posing the question, What was wrong with the desire? I mean, you really do have to look at this. What was wrong with the desire to be like God? I mean, it sounds like, well, that's a good thing. I'd like to be like God. I'd like to... I don't think it was taken in that way at the time. Let me have all God's virtues and be righteous and be... It was, I really want to be in control. I really want to be in charge of my own life. We all know from Scripture that it was this desire to be like God was not innocent. Uh, It was really the reason was that it was defiance to seek to be equal to God. It came with the cost of disobeying God in that garden. In order to take the devil's suggestion on how to be like God, they had to disobey him. It's a really twisted and devious temptation, isn't it? To see how it was twisted, the temptation to be like God is to understand the difference of how, between how Satan, as a created being, sought to take upon himself God's status versus how Jesus showed what it meant to be like God. Think about this difference. Satan leads a rebellion in heaven, wants to take over, wants God's status. And here in Philippians 2, 3 through 11, we see what it is for Jesus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1, verse 15, says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he is the head of the body of the the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The distinction is stunning. Satan leads a rebellion. Jesus says, I'm going to make myself one of the weakest things on the planet, a man born in a small village, and half the Pharisees could never figure out where he was really from, right? A a nobody, according to everyone, until he does his three years of his ministry. I mean, he lived to 30. How many of you are 27 years old or under? Remember those years? Those are the years that I've been talking about, that this identity thing can happen. I'm not saying Jesus didn't know who he was. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm noting the manner in which he goes about trying to be like God. The distinction is amazing. His identity is secure. But there's something about this that we can learn in seeking to find out who we are. Who is that person that God knit in the womb? Seeking our identity in our job, in our friends, what we own, what we control, what we do, what we look like and say, is an idol to us. And our idols are our gods. I think that's what Satan was up to. He just saw God had a nice high position. I think I want that. To define ourselves, our temptations are to be like God. It's funny how we use these things in life that at one point aren't wrong. Go ahead, pursue a career. Go ahead, try to do what makes you happy to do in life. Go ahead, get married if you want. Add all these things to your life, but don't be defined by them. What usually comes forth, though, is the selfish conceit and ambition not serving others and not humbling ourselves in the obedience to God. So what are your temptations? I, you know, I, I realize in speaking in scum sometimes that we have people here that are from the millennial generation. I kind of always worry about that if I'm going to have a jury trial. How do these people think? They're different than what I used to speak to 20 years ago as a lawyer. There used to be a sense of knowing what all the value systems are. And now you guys have new temptations and new pressures. What is, your, what is your generation demanding you look like? Does your job define you? Does your future plan define your acceptance amongst friends? What is your stage in life demanding you possess? What does it demand in, that you own? And what does it demand that you control as part of your life today? What political and social rules are you being told you have to play by? What positions do you need to be recognized as standing for? Society is getting 
crazier and crazier. Is it socialism, capitalism, vegetarianism, veganism? Do you need to have the right environmental position? Does this identify you? Are you worried about it? Here are my temptations. Lawyer, husband, father, homeowner, Lexus driver, educated, intelligent, and being right. (laughs) These are things that I would use to define myself by. That's important to me, right? Those temptations are there every day. Every day. Why should we consciously reject finding our image or our identity in these human and worldly labels, these seemingly glorious human attachments? The gift of God is to know who we are. And we are, you are, sons and daughters of the Almighty God, brothers and sisters to Jesus. And our identity is that we will be who God has created and that we will be identified with Jesus. That's what I learned in college, not to perfection, not to acting it out in any way, shape, or form, but to get past that little psychological dilemma, the psychosocial, spiritual dilemma of, you know, everybody's done in four. I'm switching majors. Uh, I'm not sure when I'm, I'm not really committed to even for sure I'll get the degree. Yeah. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, forty five through forty nine. Thus it is written the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, as you would know from context, is Jesus, became a life giving spirit. There's a reason we call it being born again, and the reason that's the reason Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the first Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I'm a big fan of reading John chapters 14 through 17 a lot because it's that nice dialogue where Jesus speaks to the disciples in the upper room before this crucifixion. There's so much said in there and so much of the dynamic between the disciples and Jesus is brought out in that discussion. Um, I'm not going to repeat it all here, <laughs> but John 17, 22 through 23, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, this is Jesus praying and speaking to God the Father, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. I didn't add this to this slide, but John chapter 14, verse 20. On that day you will realize, Jesus says to the disciples, that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. More about this identity. Don't be ignorant of this is the whole point Who are you? You are this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those that he predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. 
and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Ephesians 4, 7-8 But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 14, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, that human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In one sense, what I'm equating by that is that all of these things that we place as pressures on ourselves, who will I be, what will I do, how will I be known, am I enough yet? It's really the devil's craftiness and deceit. You are the Lord's. He knows you. He's not worried about your identity right now. All we need to be worried about is knowing Him and identifying with Him. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, we are told, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. He could replace those words with, there's not plumber, lawyer, Lexus driver, or 30-year-old GMC truck driver. These people are my brothers. These people are my sisters. There is no distinction this way between us. But Christ is all and in all. So consequently, Jesus is telling you and I that your future, your path, is not what your career decision is in college. It's not what you plan to get your degree in. It's not what you plan to get your job doing. It's not how many kids you plan to have. It's not where you plan to live. No, you are destined to be identified with him. So, who am I? Who are you? Let me go through this list that I've in the past done for a communion service once. I am not a father. I am not a husband. I am not a homeowner. I am not a driver of a Lexus. I am not a lawyer. I am not what I eat. I am not rich. I am not poor. I am not content. I am not discontent. I am not a conservative. I am not a liberal. I am not a Republican. I am not a Democrat. I am not a libertarian. I am not a capitalist. I am not a socialist. I am not an anarchist. I am not religious. I'm not a heterosexual. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not moral. I'm not immoral. I'm not a Coloradoan. I'm not an American. I'm not a Greek. And I hope you can say with me that I'm not of this world. Do you know that? I'm not in control. Neither are you. I am not nothing. But I am not no one. Neither are you. I am, you are, 
we are in communion with Jesus Christ. We are in communion with each other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for things that are true, that you teach us, that the gift we have from you is this gift of an identity with you and only you, that we are not beings defined by all that is around us or all that happened to us, but you have died for us, love us, and have given us your Son and given us an adoption as children of yours. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.